Welcome to the Weekend Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Wanted to say hello here quickly, leave a very brief message before we get into the show. Some of you might know that last year in September, my wife and I learned that she uh, had breast cancer. We had successful surgery a few months later, and in the uh, months that followed, in the first major checkup, found out that that cancer had returned. And so this was April. We're just now here on May 29th. And at the same time, she's dealing with almost out of nowhere excessive back pain. And uh, and I would not expect any of you, my dear listeners, to uh, follow my personal uh, travails and whatnot. But uh, you might have seen uh, on social media that I had to leave in a hurry from covering the Indy 500 to get home to deal with a medical emergency here. And so my wife's now been in the hospital for eight days, and we're actually heading into surgery this afternoon where uh, they will be hoping to kill and remove some of the um, cancer tumors that have grown around a certain uh, stretch of discs in her spine. So all kinds of fun. Um, And I'm not being flippant. I just, I'm running out of ways to (laughs) present this information uh, that doesn't sound contrite or maudlin or otherwise. So knowing that, um, not as if these things ever present themselves at the perfect time. Hey, you guys are going to have a really slow couple of months. Let's have cancer. Um, These things, as many of you may know from your own battles with whether it is cancer or some other uh, life-altering or life-threatening thing or family members or loved ones, you stop what you're doing and tend to them. And in the instance of the couple of weekly podcasts that I do, my Week in IndyCar show is uniquely mine and something really that only I can do with the Week in Sports Cars. Uh, I'm very fortunate to have my brothers at dailysportscar.com, that being my regular weekly co-host, Graham Goodwin, and also his young Jedi, Stephen Kilby, who I think the world of and believe has a just a massively bright future in the sport as a reporter, uh, all based on his work ethic and integrity. So with the items at home that I need to tend to in the coming weeks, I don't know how long my schedule is going to be completely thrown out, um, but at least for the coming weeks, probably through the 24 hours of Le Mans, <clears throat> maybe a little bit after, uh, I'm just needing to find areas where I can step back from some of the pre-existing time commitments so that I can focus them elsewhere with my wife and spending 90 minutes to two hours per week uh, sitting in one spot talking about sports cars is just going to be a little bit hard for me. So Stephen Kilby has kindly um, offered to step in. So he and Graham, as they did last week in a bit of an emergency for me and this week and for the next couple of weeks, we'll see exactly how long our weekend sports cars will indeed be the Graham and Steven show, not the GG and MP. And I'm hoping you enjoy the change because although I did not get a chance to listen to much of last week's, 
I have had a chance to listen to a little bit of this week's while editing it. And yeah, uh, I really enjoy it. So, uh, just apologies for needing to step back in an area like this where I know, uh, I have great folks that can uh, look after all the great questions you send in every week and put together something, uh, hopefully enjoyable and equally, if not more educational than when I'm involved doing the show. So that's just my little note here on the front end. And thank you once again to Graham and Stephen for stepping up and helping take this from me at a time where I really need to uh, free up as much of my schedule as I can. And certainly thank you to Cooper Tires, who've just been amazing in offering their support and absolute same needs to be said about my uh, my family at the justice brothers too so all right let's get going with gg and sk talking about twisc the week in sports cars here on may 29th on the good old podcast i named after myself because i must be a raging egomaniac And again, our good mate Ryan Kish has done the done the business, Stephen, and he supplied us with a goodly list of questions from you around the world on all things endurance and sports car racing as we start to tick down into the biggest race of the year, uh, the Le Mans 24 Hours. In a couple of weeks' time, we've got the test day to come this coming weekend. I know how much you're looking forward to another 24-hour race, your favourite thing in the whole world. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> let's see what the good... Uh, Good boys and girls of sports car racing's fan community want to hear from us this time around. You crack on. You can decide where we're going to start. Is it going to be in the world of IMSA? Is it going to be in the world of Wek Aslam's Elms Echo? Is it going to be where? Let's start with IMSA. There's only a handful of questions for IMSA. So let's um, kick off with that. First one we've got um, is from Jacob Bain. Bain, yeah, you're getting better at this. Yeah. he said, in episode 437, and I'm expecting you to know exactly that one. Yes, Graham, yes, I remember it well. Um, you both, so this is you and, you and Marshall, said that you aren't particularly fond of the current IMSA scoring system that awards points for the first 30 cards in each class. My yeah. question then is, if you're tasked by an organising body, let it be IMSA, for example, to rework their sports car racing series point system, which way do you go? Do you follow the FI direction of awarding the top 10 in each class, or do you reach back to pre-war... Automobile World Championship penalty point systems, or do you invent something entirely new and exciting? Um, I don't think there's any point in reinventing the wheel, to be honest with you, Jacob. And I think the to, to explain my uh, not ire, but my kind of feelings about it is the less complex, the better. This is always um, a part of the sport that has been difficult to for people to actually tap into. And I think if you, what you want is to start to get people interested in more than just that big race or the race they go to every single year, but to follow a sport, to follow a championship, to keep interested in what's going on with that championship. The best way to do that is make it as, as accessible as possible. And this isn't a crack at him, sir. There are others that are way, way worse. Stand up, blonde pan thingy thingy, whatever it's called this week, in the US. Stand up, the Australian GT Championship. My God. Yes, indeed, my God. Uh, where it's as impenetrable as a tiger tank, you know, in terms of who's, who's leading and why, and what points are they going to get for whatever they've done this week. It's, it's just next to impossible to tell by reading the, the, the points charts, even by seeing, Stephen, you know, the points you see week in, week out. 
Yeah, I mean, if you get to the end of a race weekend and you as a journalist can't work out who's actually leading the points standings before seeing the official document, it's it's, it's too not, much. It's, it's, too it's much. not fit for purpose. So it's not a cracking answer. It is simply a matter of getting things to stage where it's simple. That does get more difficult when you've got an entry list of depth. So the further down you go, of course you don't want a valuable season entrant having what might be their best race of the season and finishing, I don't know, in the top dozen, going away with literally nothing. And I completely get that. But I do think we do need a bit more clarity across the board, particularly with the major international championships. I don't object in any way to the the F1, ACO-type system whatsoever. Um, you know, it does effectively give half a point for turning up uh, in most circumstances. Uh, I'm happier with that system now that uh, we've gone away from the kind of double points for Le Mans. I think that that rather quit the pitch rather too much in a you know, reasonably short uh, championship. But for me, the key to it is not the system you're using, it's clarity around that system. And if you've got a points... Uh, table that points table should come with an explainer at the bottom explaining how those points have been awarded that that's the key for it for me that if you're going to go to a one-stop shop to find out what's happened and why it's happened then there should be an easy key to anybody to be able to unlock that uh, that enigma sometimes it can be an enigma Next question is from Smoking Puppy eight four one on Twitter. Every, everybody's favourite Twitter handle is a great way. Twitter handle. He says, "With the small, simple spec hybrid system announced for DPI two point do you think this could be the future? If it was optional for GTE class one or similar, I think it might increase increasingly be the way for those classes to become more relevant." Um, I think it's an interesting change. It clearly, you know, as we've said before, has not met with universal approval by the big names in the room. Uh, and for those that don't know, we're talking here about the Gen 2 DPI proposal that involves a kind of spec but low power. And of that, we're talking 50, 60 horsepower uh, type uh, power hybrid system. What does it do? It increases a little bit of the relevance. Uh, it does introduce uh, some differences in the way that power can be delivered. It certainly would help the hybrids with a little bit of push to pass, if you like, in traffic as well. Um, what doesn't it do? It doesn't take the the game on further for anything other than IMSA. And I think that's part of the problem. This is where some of the OEMs are beginning to kind of say, well, that's all very well, but does that draw the correct balance? I think the more interesting question there is whether or not that might be something that legitimately might come in the future to something like GT racing. I think IMSA's DPI programme first. Look, it's had success. Is it the, <clears throat> the rip-roaring success that people imply that it is? Not yet, it isn't. There are, there are not yet enough manufacturers involved to sustain a dip or withdrawal from one or more. Um, so, you know, we're, there are lessons to be learned here across the board. They've got to be careful about the technical moves they make. They certainly should be careful about trying to attract one more factory by taking a leap of faith that is not endorsed by all the rest of their customers, they are in a better position to judge that than, than you or I or, frankly, anybody else that's not in the room can. And that, I think, is the most important part of it. They have to come up with something they know they can deliver, they can deliver at a sensible cost, without impacting on their current customer base, but, by, but also retaining attractiveness for others to join, because they need others to join. You know, what we've got at the moment 
it's a very nice grid of top-class prototypes in IMSA. But it could be better, and it could be better balanced. As for the future of kind of mild hybrid in GT, I think there's an inevitability that some kind of electrification needs to come. Because if a dip comes, that dip could come alarmingly quickly. And there's certainly lessons for uh, GT racing with what we're currently seeing with... Okay, um, the BMW decision is isolated at the moment to the WEC. Ford ended their programme, and there's no surprises. That's more or less exactly what we expected uh, from Ford. But there are lessons there about how do you grow that if you have a product that isn't relevant to the OEM's marketing strategies and technology strategies moving forward. You've got to move with the times. What do you think with things like GT3 and, and these sort of customer racing categories that are more focused on pro-am entries for like Blanc Pan and stuff? Do you think SRO are going to sort of take a, a look at hybrid systems very soon? Um, I know, having spoken to Stefan Mattel, what must be a couple of years ago now, he was absolutely anti this. And, you know, it's, of course, we have seen GT cars racing with hybrid systems. We've seen them at the Nürburgring 24 hours. We had the uh, the Porsche, effectively the uh, development of the Porsche GT3R that raced at particular Mon amongst other places not so very, very long ago. But uh, I think the reality is it's got to come. Here's the irony. The deeper the pot of factory involvement you've got the more difficult it is to adapt to a new technology because you've got to take the majority with you and again it's not worth Stefan Rattel's trouble uh, to go with I don't know let's say Audi uh, and let's say Porsche if he's got nine other manufacturers that say we're not ready or we're not convinced you've got to be so careful about integrating that but the inevitability is technological change is coming it's not just the kind of future view thing, look at the supercars that are actually now out in the streets. Honda SX, for instance, is a hybrid uh, in everything other than motorsport. You know, and beyond that, increasing your, increasingly you're seeing the upgrades or the replacements for current brand of supercars and hypercars are coming with either full electric or some fairly significant aspect of hybrid power. It is no longer irrelevant. It is no longer a technological sop. It's the real world of what people are buying when they're going out there and buying these extraordinary cars. Next up, we've got a question from uh, Sports Card Sports Cardi B on USCR Reddit. He says, "It seems like the the number thirty one Action Express car has a pace advantage over the number five Mustang sampling car for a while now." Even dating back to last season, Albuquerque is clearly quick, so I find it hard to put it down to the drivers. Is there any idea on what what do you have any idea on what this could be? Um, is it possible the Delara tubs are different enough from one another to make big of a difference? Uh, I don't think the Delara tubs they certainly shouldn't be. It's a homologated part of the car, of course, but it can be set up. It can be just. But oddly enough, we had a, a, a not dissimilar question, but it related to a completely different team, either last week or the week before. And I think I was relaying a, a point back about driving luck uh, and applying that to, say, for instance, either the Porsche team in IMSA or indeed Corvette, where it does seem that they go through a season where one car squad has all the luck uh, of the good variety and the other one has all the bad. And it may just be that. There's no doubt in my mind at all that Felipe Albuquerque is a world-class driver. We see that time and time and time again. But uh, what you've got in those cars are drivers who are comfortable and are tested at all of the circuits in the other car. Felipe is still, relatively speaking, you know, a newcomer there. 
it will come, I have no doubt about that. It might be to do with the way in which that car is set up and is working better for the 31 crew than the 5, for instance. Uh, but do I think there's anything lacking in the 5? No, absolutely not. Uh, it may just be that it's a different driving style, a different way in which those, that, that, that uh, driving squad has settled in with whatever they've got in terms of race engineering resource at their disposal, uh, or any number of other things. Next up, we've got Iced Coffee on USCR Reddit as well. He, he says, Are Cadillac not running a qualifying setup, or are turbo engines an advantage for the qualifying session in IMSA? I asked because Cadillac is the only car... The Cadillac is the only car that can get close to its qualifying speed, while Acura and Mazda have a big drop-off in race speed. Interesting, isn't it? Don't know what they do for their qualifying setup. I do recall, I'm trying to think who it was that told us. It was actually, oddly enough, Jan Van Utet in the LMS, you might recall, Stephen, who, after uh, the qualifying for the Monza race, told us that the team had made a mistake and had not put the car in qualifying mode. So there is a qualifying mode uh, for an LMP2 car. You would expect, therefore, the same would be true for the DPIs. Um, it may very well be that in terms of the, uh, the deliverability of peak power, peak performance, um, that there is a flatter curve for the, uh, for the Cadillac. You would expect, in a case of a turbocharged engine, if you're just looking at a short run for qualifying, that they would be able to actually boost... Uh, to kind of a, a, a how to put this a more peaky parameter that perhaps they wouldn't want to be using as aggressive um, you know a map uh, for a longer race but the straight and honest answer is I genuinely don't know but it's an interesting observation next up we've got Weck Aslam's Elms and Akko Weck Aslam's Elms it's not is it <laughs> It'll do. Yeah, it'll do. We've got, and we've got no, a heap no, of them. No surprise at the moment, of course, there's, there's a bit more here. Not only, I'm, I'm sure regular listeners will be aware that Marshall's not with us for the next couple of weeks, but uh, but also we've not got very much by way of, um, uh, of EMSA racing just now, whilst obviously... We've got Detroit, haven't we? got Detroit coming, uh, but uh, but what we've not... Uh, what we have got, of course, is the, the, the clans are gathering for a whole range of things, just out of the LMS weekend, the teams are literally setting up as we record this at uh, the Circuit de la Salle in uh, Le Mans. We're packing, ready to go this weekend for test weekend. So, and of course, hoping and expecting we're going to get a range of information over race week to do with what have we got by way of the uh, entry for the 2019-2020 FIA World and Jones Championship. And most particularly, and um, it's only a kind of wild shot in the dark because we never get questions normally about it, car car, <laughs> and what the hell is going on there. Mm. So let's crack on and see what we can find from this little lot. Okay, so first up we've got DCV at Acme PLC on Twitter. That's a new we've, one to me, yeah. and hello and welcome. Um, who says, I'd like to know a few details on GTE budgets, both the R&D costs and the one season running costs today, and let's say back in 2004. At least the approximate numbers. Additionally, what are the chances of a privateer GTE Pro team appearing in the near future? Um, okay, let's answer the last part of that first. Uh, the answer is we don't know yet, and we clearly waited to find out whether or not, uh, for instance, Multimatic can get a private uh, Ford program uh, off the ground. That didn't look great when we were in Spa just a couple of three weeks ago. We've now had confirmation, in fact, just an hour or so before we record this show 
what we all knew was that uh, the programme with Ford as a factory team will cease at the end of this current super season in WC, in other words, after Le Mans, and will cease at the end of this year uh, after the current IMSA season. Say again, no surprises there, simply confirmation of what we were already told. Uh, great to see those cars appearing in some heritage liveries, and I suspect they'll look even better in the carbon and the paints than they actually do in photographic side of things. That, I think, is the best prospect of a privateer GTE Pro team. There are others that have sniffed around it. Doesn't look good for MTech coming back. Uh, no, no, I think no. MTech had no notice really of the final decision, um, so I don't think we're going to see MTech back unless we see maybe the odd one-off going into next next year. And I, I frankly can't see that. As for budgets, the the thing about factory budgets is spend what you like, and it depends how you measure that. Do you measure that on the R and D? Do you measure that on just simply what you're doing to field the team do you measure that on what you're doing in terms of marketing do you measure that what you're doing with business to business activity at the track but it's a significant number to give you a number i can put a kind of uh, a degree of certainty on i can tell you what it costs to run something like gt am team for a full season of uh, the fi world insurance championship and it's an easy figure to give you because it's more or less precisely the same as the figure that you would actually be using LMP2, and it's about three and a half million euro for a full season, of course, including the Le Mans 24 hours. A two car team comes at a saving uh, per car of something like 10%, so about 3.2 million. Uh, that's uh, of course comes courtesy of the fact that some of the logistics, some of the, the kit caboodle that you need to run those cars, you're duplicating, including some of the staffing as well. You're only one team manager for a two car team, etc. And as we all know, those team managers come with at least a million pounds worth of uh, salary. <laughs> he says, laughing up his sleeve. But um, the, the reality is, of course, you're then talking for a full pro effort uh, for that to be a league above that. Can I give you a number? I could guess, uh, but it would be a guess. Uh, my guess is that you're probably talking for a full factory effort, full rich factory effort with somebody like Porsche, where you do an activation at the circuit. Uh, Aston Martin the same when you've got full factory drivers with the salaries that those guys actually attract because of course you've not got a gentleman driver bringing that budget when you've got a test program that backs that up uh, you're probably I would guess talking somewhere north of six uh, to seven million uh, per car is my guess Uh, but it may well be that it's closer to five nowadays if you look at actually what some of those teams put into their factory programs look at AF Corsa for instance yeah, they've got hospitality at the track and you know all of the, the good things that come with that. But that is not the same kind of budget at the track that potentially you're seeing from Porsche or, or for instance, Aston Martin. And it's, it's gone up a lot, hasn't it, in recent years? I mean, look at the difference between Aston and what they had in terms of resource in the, the early days of the WC compared to now where they've got the more actual factory backing. Well, the but that, that makes a big difference. I mean, the fact that you've actually got, the, they've got a new platform now that is there is very much a shop window for Aston Martin Lagonda. Forget the Aston Martin racing side, but it's a shop window for them. And that's something with Andy Palmer coming across to Aston Martin from Nissan in 2016 sea change in the way in which uh, they've addressed it thankfully for all of us Aston Martin for instance have long had their motorsport programs at the real core of their marketing efforts but that has only increased their involvement with Red Bull Racing in Formula 1 
what they're doing, of course, you know, with a brand new range of GT cars, GT4, GT3, GTE, and let's wait and see what happens in terms of hypercar moving forward into a new era for their high-end uh, products. Not that there's an Aston Martin that isn't high-end, but you know what we saw at the Geneva show with four uh, mid-engined cars and concepts. You know there, were, there was massive change coming, and thankfully they're using their GT race programs in a whole range of ways. Not least of which is to prove technology. Um, and you know, also with a lot of business-to-business activity, a lot of customers coming along to those races, but promoting the fact that they're moving forward. Next question comes from Jerry Robert Suddaf from Facebook. He says, "Do you see Ben Keating driving the Ford GT in a non-works effort in the 2019-20 WC season?" Um, it is an interesting one. Ben has, has had various opinions. You've, you've I know, spoke to Ben about mm. this one. There's been times when he said no. There's been times when he said he will do potentially some other racing. I think what he has said is not interested in a Pro-Am GTLM part of uh, IMSA. I think there's every prospect we'll see that car out racing. Where and when is an interesting one. The one that's obvious as a prospect would be for him to continue, if he's going to continue in GTD in 2020, is the doubleheader at Sebring, Super Sebring, to potentially have the Ford running in the, uh, the wet race and whatever he decides to run, if it's the AMG uh, in IMSA next year. Do we know this? No, we don't. Will he be battered to an advantage in his life by journalistic query? Yes, he will. But you're the man that's spoken to him. What's he told you, Stephen? Well, he, he told me back at Sebring, and what's interesting about what he said was, he said they're not going to make any decisions on where they're going to run that car until after Le Mans. And obviously that's come after the WC deadline for entries next season. So it's very unlikely, I think, that we see it as a full season entrant. Very but whether unlikely. he does the odd round here and there in GTM, that could be a possibility. Well, we know that's that's likely to be the case. I mean, um, we'll come, I'm sure, later on to what my expectations are now of uh, what we'll see for a full season entry for the WEC. But we've already had, you know, you and I were in a uh, test at Spa uh, last week and there was what was meant to be a one-off entry for Le Mans, the APM Monaco uh, Porsche 911 RSR uh, with the Proton Competition guys. And the three Monegast drivers telling us that they will be looking to be a one-off entry at Shanghai because that's where they've got those business interests. So, you know, I think we will see that. I hope we'll see our good friends from Car Guy at the Fuji round as well. I know they've been keen to look at that. They tried to get an entry for Spa off the ground and that, that didn't quite work. And we know from uh, Roman Rusinov that he's targeting uh, Bahrain and possibly uh, Fuji as well with the G-Drive Aurus LMP2 effort. So, for me... That'd be really good. I mean, you know, it's great to have a stable world championship, but boy, oh boy, it's nice when the old guest car turns up and adds something else into the mix. We saw it this this current season, of course, with the Corvette guys, with uh, some one-offs for them. But uh, it, it's always good to see something a little bit different, add something into that mix. It's great to see something new. Give some stories to tell, doesn't it, at some it of these rank-and-file races. Um, uh, Jakob... Bam again comes through. On again, yeah, yeah. yeah, comes through again with another question on Facebook. He says, "Graham, you've been uh, mentioning recently things along the lines of what might come after the WC. Usually, while answering questions concerning the state of car car, is there some actual substance to this, or am I overly pedantic? Is there any risk of the WC devolving back into the RMC or collapsing altogether in the near future?" 
That's a great question. No, you're not being pedantic, not in any way, shape or form being pedantic. Uh, the reality is, you know, as we've seen with just about every other racing product in the modern era, that things come in a, a, a cyclical way. And, you know, look, for instance, at what's happened in North America. You know, Grand Am is no more, the Asian, the, Asian, the American Le Mans series is no more. And what we've got is new and in very many ways better than what we had before. The FIWC is now entering another season. Uh, there are clear questions still out there about what's going to happen with the premier class of that. Um, there are various partners involved in that, not just the factories, but of course the ACO and the FIA. Uh, LMEM, their uh, uh, organisation that is a partnership between the two, is the, uh, the operator of the FIWC. And is it possible we might see the end of the WC as an FI World Championship. I think it's possible. You know, we, we at the moment have got a, pre, a premium class with one factory entrance in, which means we don't have a Manufacturers World Championship for the overall winners of the uh, FIWC. I think the press conference at the Mon this year, much as it's our least favourite two hours of the racing year this year, I hope and expect it will have some answers rather than some questions. Am I predicting the imminent uh, demise of the FIWC? Of course I'm not. What I'm saying is that there are all sorts of options that you would reasonably expect to be on people's table uh, and some of those might mean that the status quo doesn't stay the same. So am I doing that from a position of knowledge? No. Am I doing that from a position of kind of uh, intelligent... Uh, examination of the of the circumstances in front of us, absolutely 100% I am. There are no facts to report yet. I don't expect there are going to be facts to report any time very soon, uh, but I think we should all have our eyes open to the fact that uh, some formats are proving to be successful. I lay uh, open before the courts the Intercontinental GT Challenge where it is not an FIA World Championship but they have been able to um, to qualify claims of, I think it's nine factory entries for the full five-race season. I'm sure that's the kind of thing that's turned the heads of the people in charge of the WEC and the ACO. Next up, we've got Ian Keyworth on Facebook. He says, do you think the split season for the WEC, i.e. autumn to spring, is going to cause issues for manufacturers going forward as it may not align to fiscal years for budget sign-offs? Could this put off IMSA DPI teams that budget for calendar years? Um, I think this, the the, uh, the move to a winter series made some sense in two or three regards, but it certainly caused uh, some problems in terms of, like you quite rightly say, the, the budgetary side, also things like driver rankings. And I'll give you a for instance here. So f- to have a season that cuts over two calendar years when you've got the overlay on that one for driver rankings is, of course, a calendar year system. That means that you have to have a rule that if you are full-season entrant in the WEC, starting in September, that you have to retain that driver ranking into the following year to, to complete the season you've committed to. It's exactly the same rule uh, here or there uh, we've had in the Asia Le Mans series for several years. So a silver driver uh, in September, should they be regraded by the FIA to gold you know, for the following year's a driver ranking stays as a silver but only in that championship uh, so the interesting part of this one is the way that's beginning to impact the choices of teams and drivers that are keen to retain someone as a silver 
that potentially what you might want to be looking at is to place that guy in a FI World, uh, World Endurance Championship. I think it's... It- if anything, it, it, although it could hit a factory um, program hard, I think it hits um, some of the pro-am teams in the WC harder because they're, if they're relying more on sponsorship agreements and partnerships and drivers bringing budget and they've got their own partners bringing money to them and their programs, it's harder for them to see something across the line and we've seen that and I've spoken to some some members of the P2 paddock who have said that not only is it difficult to try and budget for a full season when it crosses over to fiscal years, but you you can't just change a livery for new sponsors. You can't change a title sponsor of a race team mid-season. No, so if you do yeah. have a trouble mid-season, it, sometimes it can be hard to get out. Well, stand up TFC, TRSM, Janetta for that. Exactly that. We've seen... And an Malaysian car in... in absolutely. You know, we've seen as well, for instance, the changes to Jackie Chan DC Racing's lineup from Sebring. That's because a number of the teams did indeed sign agreements with drivers for a calendar year. And that they and they did that on the basis of one, that's what they could get, and two was that they betted on, and for the most part have been successful in betting on, the fact that um, Sebring, Spa and Le Mans, as a three-race deal, to complete the season was a relatively easy sell. Uh, and they're not the only ones. I mean, you know, we've seen uh, transfers of drivers throughout the year. I mean, and, and for instance, before Le Mans, the Labra competition, Ligier, uh, yes, had the, uh, our two Parfumier uh, friends, uh, but actually had not had the same driver for any race. Uh, you know, that uh, Nick Boulet, he'll be racing with the team at, uh, at Le Mans and also raced at Spa, is the first time they've carried over a driver between two races this season it, it, it has been a bit of a plate spinning act it is something that the guys are trying to adapt to at this point I think if you were to ask many of the teams in the paddock they would tell you it's caused more problems than it's solved uh, I think it's going to be an interesting response to questions from uh, Monsieur Fion and Monsieur Naveau to ask how they're finding it in terms of their negotiations with factories, with regulators, with sponsors, with media, because it is just different. It's not unique. Angel Le Mans does it. Formula E does it. But it does cause additional issues. Stephen Armstrong from Facebook um, is asking a question about BMW. He says, with BMW ending the M8 programme after the upcoming uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans, where does the... Where does the future look like? Or what? Sorry, what does the future look like for BMW and MTech? The M8 will continue racing in IMSA with RLL, but can we reasonably expect it to be competitive without any factory support from BMW? Is a privateer route or GTM route reasonable for WC? Additionally, I read that MTech will likely be left high and dry for the 2019-20 season due to late timing and exclusivity of their current deal with BMW. What are their options? Right, first and foremost, the RLL uh, squad remains with the factory backing they've had uh, to this point. It was eventually a very late decision from BMW, and and you're the guy to actually answer this question, because you're the guy, uh, Stephen, that's spoken to Ernst Gunnar at uh, BMW MTech. I think they went from a position where they were reasonably hopeful that they might retain something, to a position where, frankly, now I think they're treading water and waiting for the end of that contract. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they they kind of... I think he had a reasonable and uh, pretty frank discussion with me about what he thought of their season and what he thought their achievements were compared to their expectations. And I think he's right that, that it did... 
it has been better for the BMW M Tech team as we've got into the season and we've had a couple of podium finishes in the second half and things like that. Um but I think, you know, look, looking back he'll have you know, he'll rue the chances that they missed of, of getting a win. Um, towards the second half of the season and that helping them secure a deal for next year because I think he still genuinely thought when he spoke to me at Spa that there is a chance that they were going to continue this and I, I didn't I think you know he's not able to make any plans due to this contract until he knew the answer to that but, question worth making it clear for, for our listeners what their contract is what it is that they are tied to BMW they cannot go and work with another manufacturer until when well he, he didn't give me an exact date he just said uh, as it stands, and that was the the day of the announcement um, that BMW were going to pull out, that they couldn't go and talk to anyone yet because of the exclusivity deal. But he said it would be lifted very soon. OK, so fingers crossed that they can come up with something. But I think it's fair to say that Ernst was not confident that we would see uh, his team out racing for any kind of full season activity until at least next year. Yeah, and I think he's he's been realistic about it. He's He's not written off 19 to 20. But he he sort of said to me that in some ways it gives them a long time to prepare for the 2021 season. Mm-hmm. And make no mistake, they do want to continue in the WC. He, when I asked him about looking elsewhere, other commitments in motorsport and other championships, um, he didn't seem to be like immediately jumping to, I'd want to go back to DTM or something like that. He made it clear that they feel welcome in the WC, they've enjoyed the year and all their guys you know, want to continue. Okay. Well, fingers crossed and good luck to them. Um, Stephen Armstrong also asked, uh, could a mid-engine to Corvette programme be in the future um, for WC and Le Mans? I think it's a really interesting question. It's something that nobody's actually asked. Do I think it's coming in 2019-2020? As a full season, I'm pretty certain the answer would be no. And there's one immediate reason for that. I think we are expecting to see... Um, uh, a season entry for 2019-2020 announced at the Le Mans 24 Hours. Uh, the C8 is not going to be unveiled till the following month. It would be unusually and extreme, you'd have thought, to actually have Corvette Racing announced anything for the FIWEC full season with a new car before that car has actually been revealed to the world. Um, do I think there's a possibility we'll see more of an uptick in Corvette's activity in the WEC, well, we've seen them in actually half of the races this season in the WEC, where both of the uh, iterations of the uh, the Le Mans 24 Hours at Shanghai and then at Sebring, uh, where we had a one-off car. There's all sorts of reasons for that. One of which is, of course, there were some specific marketing reasons with Redline in China, uh, and beyond that, that they are under some pressure, uh, both self-imposed and imposed by the rulemakers around their continued um, the continued surety of their places at the Le Mans 24 hours and indeed the way in which the auto BOP system actually works and BOP in general works for them uh, so could we see at some point in the future more from Corvette in the WC I sincerely hope so do I expect that to be in 2019-2020 as a full season entrant no I don't I think we will know more when we've heard from uh, Corvette and General Motors about the plans for that C8 road car and exactly what the race plans are um, due to do. Um, I have had, by the way, uh, some weeks ago, a friend and colleague telling me 
that he's 90% certain that he saw one of those cars testing here in the UK, um, you know, and behind closed doors here in the UK. Uh, quite what that was about, I think we can sort of get towards in terms of one of the specialist suppliers that is relatively close to the circuits that uh, th this car was apparently seen at, uh, not photographed, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, what is in the future for that car? Zero doubt we'll see that car in IMSA. Uh, zero doubt either that that will be their future weapon of choice for the Le Mans 24 hours. Would like to think that uh, they see the value in adding at least one car uh, to the odd one-off as well in the WEC. And from there on in, it's about what the world plans are for that car. If it's a world car, if it's a car that General Motors are going to be uh, selling around the world, then could a WEC programme be in the offing? Well, no reason why it shouldn't be, other than the budgetary and logistical aspects. So we've got a few questions about car car. Really? Yeah. That makes a change. Odd, isn't it? Uh, we've got one from Right Turn Lover. We've got one from... Uh, uh, Staffis Coco and that's another one you've um, absolutely insulted. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and one from Jonathan Wu, and they're roughly the same sort of questions. So, right turn lovers asking about what will Toyota do when, not if the car car regulations are delayed, and the other two are sort of saying, you know, what's the latest situation on it? Is there a deadline? What's the plan B? Uh, I don't think I've ever been in a position ever since starting doing what I do and what we do. Uh, where we've had less clarity on exactly what and when will happen at this level. Um, and we've said before, I'm not going to bore you all again, um, with the the fact that this is not as simple as this is a total cock-up. It's not like that at all. The reality is this is looked to be a situation of flux from almost day one. Uh, I hope... Note the lack of uh, use of word expect that we are going to get more clarity uh, during Le Mans week. And I hope we're going to get the heads up before that so we get the opportunity to do something other than cut and paste um, a text. The more positive the news is, the more likelihood there is that we can interrogate a little bit deeper. Start with Toto. Toto have been very firm from day one that the two things that they require is that the opportunity is there for a prototype base because they have a car that they can use, not, not the current TSO 50. That will be with us next season and no further. But uh, the car that we've seen previously uh, on display in Tokyo and at Le Mans. And that they wish for their hybrid system um, to be deployable through the front axle. And that has been open to question. It looks as if that has had more ebb and flow than your average tidal estuary um, through the last several months. But we might be now moving into a position where there's certainty about exactly what's going to be allowed. You know what? We could have written a piece, Stephen, you and I, every single week about this. We could have chucked out there, this person's told us this and that person's told us that. And it's going to be this and it's going to be that. And it's going to be option between the two. And it's just not the way we do it. Um, you know, if you look back at the, the pieces that have been written around in print and on the internet, it has to be said in particular on the internet, the degree of certainty, it will be this, it's going to be that, this has been agreed. And here we are, you know, on the cusp of June 2019, and the reality is that we don't know. Uh, we might know what people have told us, but to give you a for instance, dear listeners, I have been told with absolute certainty by people... Uh, in recent weeks, they particular 
insert name of brand, will definitely be doing uh, the FIWC with a hypercar in year one um, by a number of people, then flatly denied by another source very close to insert same name of, uh, of, uh, of brand. It is just that difficult at the moment to gain a solid grasp of exactly what is going to come forward here. It, it, it sort of feels like it's been a one-shot deal for them. I don't believe that's true. Uh, I think there are options ahead for the rule makers here. You know, regular listeners to the week in sports cars will be very familiar with my argument that if you are going to bite the bullet of balanced performance, um, much as that is something that's a source of regret for many, it does open other possibilities for the rule makers uh, with a little bit of bravery, with a little bit of understanding from uh, all those involved. Uh, it, you know, it might require more testing. It might require a rather more meaningful Le Mans t- uh, test day. It might require that test day to be earlier than otherwise would be the case. But I think at this stage, fortune favours the brave. Uh, I want to see a, a step forward. I want to see a leap forward. And whatever that's going to be, if it's going to be car-car, car-car delayed, uh, integration of uh, the current LMP1 cars without the hybrids, the opportunity for factories to do the same, the opportunity for DPI manufacturers to come now or in 2022 or whatever else or a combination of any number of those all I think is required now to take us forward and have a reasonable external debate about this one outside the wood panelled you know uh, walls of whatever conference room the discussions are being had is we need clarity we need clarity now and then people can go on and actually start to sell this beyond its current audience Bit of a change of pace now then, Graham. Now we've finished on the car car topic. Let's talk about Le Mans pit stop regs from... Uh, we have a question from Nicky Swan on Twitter, who says, do the pit stop regulations for this year's 24 hours at Le Mans revert back to refuelling only, then tyres and service, or is that for next year? Oh, now that's a good question, Nicky, because I've not yet got into my pre-Le Mans, let's check the regulations and make sure I'm not talking rubbish. Um, I think that's next season. Mm, I've got a feeling it is so, as well. But the question again is whether or not we're we're going back to refueling only, then tyres and service this year. I think we're. I think we're as you were. I think until we're as you next were. WC season. Until the next WC season. Um, frankly, it was nonsense. You know, it was a brave go at trying to do something, but I think anybody really could have told them that the, the attempt to actually make this more relevant and entertaining was doomed to failure. It's just added nothing and take, actually taking some, some things away. Nicky, I'll check it out and I will Let's come back. come back to it next week. Absolutely, 100%. Because by next it. week we will have been to the Le Mans test day. Um, we'll have a lot more to talk about in terms of the reality of their performance and I'll have had a chance to actually catch up with the rule book. Um, this next one's from Tom Bacon, fabulous name, on Twitter. It says... Will Toyota slot Brendan Hartley straight into the seat left by Fernando Alonso, or will they look look to shuffle the driver combinations? Good question. It was nice to see Brendan at Spa. We've got him to uh, take some time and come over and uh, and say hello. Uh, still the same Brendan Hartley, still tall, still tousled head and Kiwi, and clearly loving the fact that he's actually back with a competitive LMP team. Very busy boy at the moment, of course. Ferrari 
uh, simulator driver. Great to see Davide Rigon popping by. Both of those Ferrari F1 sim, sim drivers uh, involved as well with the development program for Porsche and their Formula E uh, program. And of course, here we are. It's, it, was, it was his first time behind the wheel of a Toyota TSO 50, and we'll join the season from uh, Silverstone in September. Also worth saying, by the way, just in the hours before we recorded this, confirmation that the new testing and reserve driver for Toyota, Kazoo Racing, is going to be 21-year-old Thomas Laurent. And delighted for him. Uh, quiet lad, Thomas. Um, first met him back, what, four years ago, Asian Le Mans series with uh, David Cheng, having put a lot of trust in that young man, taking them through uh, small prototypes, LMP3s into LMP2, now LMP1 with Rebellion Racing, Okay, looked into an overall win with Rebellion with the exclusion of the Toyotas at Silverstone, but that, he's still a, a World Championship race winner. Um, and more to the point, uh, more often than not, the kids' car with himself and Gustavo Menezes and Matt Besh before he stepped aside was actually humbling to a degree the full pro car where we've had Neil Yarny making it clear he's not a very happy bunny and he's going to go off and play with Formula E. Uh, after this season, not happy about the way the EOT has worked. Can't say to blame him. Andre Lotra, he's looked a bit off colour, I think, this year, and Bruno Senna. Uh, you would have expected them to boss the other car, and that simply has not happened. Will Toyota uh, reshuffle the pack? Possibly. I think it's going to be interesting to see exactly how they play that. We only had three drivers uh, that we could see on parade at Spa. Uh, it was one from each of the full-season cars, uh, it was uh, Seb Boemi and uh, Jose Maria uh, Lopez plus Brendan. Uh, no sign yet of exactly how they're going to play that. But again, that's something we might get to at the test day. Daniel O'Donnell says on Twitter, any news on whether the GTE class will, or GTE classes, I imagine he means, will run to a set number of laps per stint at Le Mans this year? Thank you. Oh. I love the show. Oh, God, I hope not. Uh, we've got the BOP now for the test day. Um, just less of this nonsense really you know it's supposed to be an efficiency formula let them be efficient let them do what they want to do if they if they feel they can be quick in the pits and um, you know quicker still on track or if they feel they want to run you know in a Lewis Hamilton at Monaco sort of way um, then let them do that uh, again yet to have fully clarified the way they're going to actually allow those regulations. Of course, remember, Le Mans 24 Hours has its own set of, um, of, of sporting regulations. Uh, we'll get clarification of that one, but God, I hope not. It, 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 this is far beyond balance of performance and driver rankings, neither of which are my favourite things in the world. This total nonsense of trying to, um, to, to over-manage, to micromanage strategy adds absolutely nothing whatsoever to this sport happy to say that to the face of anybody that wants to ask the question adds nothing takes away a whole lot um, what we want to see is strategic genius it might make no difference whatsoever but just having the freedom of thought that it offers at Le Mans at Spa 24 hours where you know you guys will know I'm not very happy with the way that's gone in recent years it takes away something it takes away the fact that this is absolutely a pure team sport I've got my new favourite username Graham it's whoopity scoop poop whoopity scoop poop yeah on USCR reddit 
He says, with BMW dropping its M8 program in the WEC, do you expect a new manufacturer to join and take its place? We've had times when that could have been so. Um, you know, we certainly know the Lamborghini took a good hard look at it and appear not to be uh, close to that anymore. McLaren, we know, have taken a look more than once at GTE. Um, and again, that at the moment does not look to be um, a goer. Uh, and the so, Cobra. <laughs> don't even start. Um, but the, beyond that, the, the one that you have to say that looks most likely, of course, is the other team that exists at the moment in GTE Pro Racing, but doesn't race in WC. That's Corvette. We just debated that just a few minutes ago. Do I see that being immediately on the horizon? No. Might we see a privateer step in with a GTE Pro car? It is possible. Um, you know, we've got privateer Porsches out there in numbers, of course. Uh, and a new Porsche on the way. So if you've been looking at the pages of Daily Sports Car and Racer uh, this past week, you'll have seen testing at Monza in pretty well undisguised fashion, the new 911 RSR with the side uh, exit exhausts. Uh, let's wait and see. But at the moment, no, not expecting it immediately. The other prospect is what, if anything, will become of the now non-factory Fords. On WC Reddit, we've got Martin Aleka, who says... Is staying with the current LMP1 prototypes we have as a top class an option going forward? Uh, it is. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those cars. I mean, as a good friend of mine is fond of saying, take away the Totas and we'd all be going, wow, aren't those cars fantastic? Because they are mightily quick. The fact that they're not as quick uh, over a race distance as a Tota is a bit like saying, yeah, but, you know, that fantastic rocket-powered, um, you know, space vehicle is not quite as quick as the shuttle or the saturn 5 the reality is they are spectacularly quick remember uh, the kind of figures including jensen button's qualifying lap at silverstone uh, last year where he was quicker than the porsche 919 look at arudjev's qualifying efforts uh, at spa with the smp br1 er where he was quicker than one of the, the Toyota factory drivers and with half a second of the rest of it. So there's nothing wrong with the pace of those cars. The problem with those cars is it's the way in which that performance is delivered, and in particular in a formula that we've got which relies so much on traffic, uh, where they can get the punch out the turns, the punch through traffic that you cannot deliver with a standard car. I think there was a very interesting point that was made in uh, Race Car Engineering's recent editorial from Andrew Cotton, where he says, he believes, uh, I think I'm kind of paraphrasing, a lot of the problems could be solved at the moment by allowing manufacturers to come now with a non-hybrid LMP1. I think that would be a very interesting prospect indeed, even if that was just as a two- to three-year bridge between what we've got now and what's coming later. Um, I'm really not sure how to pronounce this one. I'm so sorry. It's Trip. Troavasaurus? Troavasaurus. Troavasaurus. I've met him. I've met him. Troavasaurus. Troavasaurus. It says on WC Reddit, Hi Graham, will you be sticking with your WC colleagues in the booth for Le Mans? I rewatched the race when I got home last year to see what I was missing being trackside and enjoyed the former drivers, Chandok and the Scots. That sounds like a motorsport-themed folk fan, if ever I read one. Right, okay, right, young man. The answer is, uh, there are announcements to come, they are not for me to make. Uh, I can tell you I will most certainly be at Le Mans. I can tell you that depending on uh, your chosen mode of catching up with the race, you will be hearing my voice at Le Mans. 
Uh, we'll also be there with a full team from Delhi Sports Car, uh, and we're going to be adding a little bit of a trick uh, to our coverage this year that we've not tried before. Uh, so watch this space for that one. Um, as for what is going to be the offer for the uh, the stream, uh, the app, uh, I'm absolutely fully aware of what that is meant to bring to you. You're not going to be disappointed, without a shadow of a doubt. But again, we're just, I think, a day or two away from a full announcement of what that, that team is going to be. Uh, but I think it's, it's fair to say that uh, it's a pretty strong lineup. Final WC question, Graham. We've arrived already. It's Big Racer Boy, and he says on WC Reddit, I've got a question about GTE. Do you think that the regulations for GTE, in order to help the class as a whole, should include a previous rule from GT1, where in order to have a factory team, you must have enough to sell to customers? Um, I think it's in their interest to do so. Uh, I, th- I think what you don't want to do is to get caught, uh, get caught by not blocking people that have got enough for that that launch, but not uh, to actually get into a customer supply deal. Uh, whether or not you do that with uh, simply you know a one year uh, waiver, that's you know there's got to be cars in year two. Um, remember, of course, again this is another area that tends to get things to quite complex uh, matters because of the winter series and a, a chunk of the potential customer base still operates for a calendar year so it's where for instance the uh, Aston Martin customer teams were caught using having to use the uh, outgoing car for an additional 18 months uh, because the in, in reality in, under the past rules Paul Delano and TF Sports would have been entitled to actually use the current twin turbo vantage from Sebring uh, they couldn't do that because we're still in the middle of the earlier the, the earlier season it was not uh, homologated for uh, GTM use so I don't want to see more rules I want to see more encouragement for people being able to come forward with more and better now we're moving on to the general questions Graham and we're going to start with Graham Ritter who on Facebook says are there any plans for Mercedes AMG to step up to the hypercar slash car car or possibly DPI in the future? Have they been part of any of the discussions about prototype racing for the new regulations? Interesting, isn't it? This is, you know, 1999 and we saw their last effort selling off into the trees with Peter Dunbreck at the, at the wheel. Um, they've been loath to come back since then other than in GT racing. There has been uh, one attempt, without a shadow of a doubt. It was, I know, much demi- uh, denied by some of the people concerned. Uh, about a DPI program in the early days of the then uh, was Tudor United Sports Car Championship. Uh, may have even been year two for that, but that one went away. Do I think they're watching? I think they're watching with great interest the way that the technology side of things comes forward. Do I expect them to be coming anytime soon? No. Uh, they have a successful Formula One program that I think they feel ticks as many of the boxes as they need. Uh, they've clearly had a look pretty recently at their uh, their motorsports priorities. They've got Formula E kicking around, uh, of course. They've uh, pulled their cars now out of DTM. Do I think they're ready at this point to step into the ring? No. Would I be surprised if they came back at some point in the medium-term future? Not in the slightest. 
Klaus Rabeck Olsen on Facebook says, name one or two periods of racing that have had the most influence on road cars. I'm thinking lights, brakes, tyres, fuel, safety. Hashtag me personally, the 50s. Not 50s, definitely. Yeah. But please, gentlemen, discuss. Uh, I think, that, here you go, 50s, you know, disc brakes, screen wipers, things like that, effective, uh, usable technology is certainly part of it. I'm going to offer this one in, and it's just a one off. We've had so much derision for LMP1 hybrid in uh, recent months. I think we've got very short goldfish-like memories. Remember, this, I mean, yes, these massive, massive budgets that were kind of put into racing. It's that sort of a kind of red herring, because when you look into what these companies are spending on R&D anyway, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean. The problem was that other OEMs couldn't match that level of commitment. But as, as a one-off, as I recall, Porsche, in from memory, the penultimate year of the 919 hybrid, managed to get twice as much energy into their battery pack for no additional weight. None. So that is a massive step forward in their energy storage capacity through the use of combination of their core OEM R&D, but particularly their uh, motorsport R&D, in a single year. And I can remember being told by people who know about these things how long that would have taken if it was purely a laboratory-based uh, programme. Without motorsport, that would have been far slower coming forward. Look at it as well in this, these terms. Again, during that period, we had a point where the leading cars, the Audis, the Totas, and indeed the Porsches, were completing the Le Mans 24 hours. Uh, using something like 45% of the fuel that they would have done in the immediate pre-hybrid era, three years previously. Half the fuel. That is pretty astonishing. That's a level of technological advance that we are now beginning to see evolve into road cars, and not just high-end road cars either. You know, I, I do get a bit tired when people bang on about hybrid being kind of old tech, etc., etc. It's not old tech. It is an entry level into the electrification that is coming to the car that's going to be parked outside your house or your neighbour's house. It is, is absolutely the direction that things are going. An LMP1 hybrid played its part. Uh, the reasons for its, its, its demise are long, lengthy, at times tedious and complex, but it is not just as simple as the rulemakers got it wrong. Rulemakers may have lost control of the costs there. Uh, there may have been a degree of, how do we put this, getting a little bit too much too comfortable with having three factory teams there. I think there certainly would have been a reason to complain about that. But as far as relevance goes, I can think of no better example of the relevance than rather bizarrely, you know, that step towards the point where our friends over at Formula E can now go and carry that flag forward and say, look at what we've got. The reality is the first step towards that in terms of real international motorsport came from Audi, from Toyota, and later from Porsche. Formula One followed. I want to get your opinion on the diesel era, Graham, because I kind of I miss this being so young. Because I, I grew up with diesel prototypes, but wasn't involved in the sport. But you obviously were reporting on it. The diesel era with Audi and Peugeot, obviously, it ended pretty poorly with the the VW scandal and everything like that, and that came crashing down. But looking back, what do you think of that era in terms of its relevancy to road cars? Uh, massive. I mean, you know, the reality was diesels were 
a pretty popular choice uh, across Europe, less so perhaps in the UK, but that came later. Um, here we are in the ironic point some years on from diesel gates, but the cleanest cars you can drive that aren't electric cars are diesel-powered cars. Um, you know, the, the diesel technology has taken that step forward. Of course, now you've got that gap in confidence levels, but the reality is now that the issues about particulates are actually being tackled. Reality is GTL fuel, gas-to-liquid fuel, that was the diesel fuel, is not the kind of diesel that you and I would pump out of our local supermarket or you know, filling station pump, but the the basic technology was more or less the same. And as as far as a genius move to grab the headlines, to take a marketing stage forward that that stage very few other organisations are taking, what Audi did with the R10 was massive, a massive step forward. Um, that, you, know, you talk now to the uh, the guys who drove those cars. You know, obviously talk fairly regularly, on and off mic to Alan McNish, and, and he will tell you. You know, that, that is an astonishing piece of kit. And, they, and this comes from a man who'd done Formula One. This comes from a man who, you know, won major races in major uh, sports car teams with Porsche, moved to Toyota, back to Audi again. Um, and for someone like Alan to kind of offer that opinion with that level of strength behind it you've got lesson um was it a significant area it was a massively significant area uh, era it was of course the last time before hybrid that we saw those complaints about different technologies reality is we shouldn't be standing still you can either be a purist that wants somebody to bring the biggest fastest baddest thing on four wheels or three or two if that's what you want to do um or six or you go for something that is altogether more spec, and there are various gradations in between. For me, I always tend to edge towards the former, and in those circumstances, you've got to go with, these are the guys who brought in the biggest hammer to that fight, um, and is it fair that Henri Pescarolo spending a tenth of the money can't stay on the same lap? Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid it is. If you want to race then you're asking yourself a different sort of question. That is a different question to whether or not you've got the fastest car. Next one's from James Counter on Facebook. He says, After watching the MotoGP qualifying crash where Marquez ran back to the pits to get on the second bike to put in a hot lap, what sports car examples can you think of like this for people who have either done mad things to get in a second car or getting a car back out which should have been in a bucket? My favourite example of this is the Audi at Le Mans in 2015-16 crashing on its way to Mulsanne, which was repaired before the barriers had even been replaced. Well, I mean, we've had all sorts of uh, madness, particularly with the Audi team Yost here, haven't we? But... uh, uh, we've had cars completely rebuilt uh, in Bahrain after the cars were uh, checked after they came out of the container and found to have chassis damage from the previous race. Uh, we've had a couple of instances with our good friend Tracy Crone and issues. In, in fact, there was, there was a period of time at Le Mans where I think we had four or five consecutive seasons, uh, years at Le Mans, where a chassis that had started the week uh, was replaced by a chassis by race day uh, certainly it's happened from test day it certainly happened in race week I think it's happened twice to Tracy it happened to Imsa Matmut it happened to from memory Pro Speed as well um, we've had all sorts of shenanigans going on to make sure those cars can actually make the grid hope we don't get it this year hope it has a safe test day 
but yeah, certainly some of the things we've seen from uh, daytime of twenty four hours, uh, well, yeah, well, <laughs> the early some, days. <laughs> some of the things we've seen, you just your jaw drops. Um, you know, back in the day where Audi could change the whole rear end of that car, gearbox included, not because they needed to, because actually it made sense to, and they had so much of a lead that they had time to bring it in with that astonishing Ricardo developed system where it's a quick release rear end that actually had to be banned um, to stop them exhibiting that level of dominance pure engineering genius I mean absolute genius and coming in some of those cars with so much damage that you kind of thought well that thing they're going to pour that back into the truck Um, you know and not just them we've seen it with Toyota we've seen it with Porsche you know know, we've seen these cars come back from absolute adversity a race team is a, a massively impressive thing to watch. Um, GT cars as well, uh, a massively Im- impressive thing to watch. And it tends to be just three or four things that would stop these guys. They, as well as the machines they care for, are an absolute machine. And it is a joy to watch these guys go at it. You know, you know, at times with the you know the age old you know race tape and hammer toolkit but beyond that you know just the drilling that they do uh to make sure that they're ready for anything they can throw at it much reported and i know people you know with uh mounts agog about tota's tale last year about uh testing all sorts of scenarios including coming round with the car on three wheels nothing unusual about that i say that is what i would term the audi way that was copied by many and I've stood and watched in testing for Audi uh, from the pit wall or from just next to the garage. And as they roll the car into a stop, it's at that point that the team manager will say over the radio, uh, OK, damage, front left, um, rear right puncture, rear wing. That's the first these guys know of what drill they're being put through. And their job is to get that car into the garage get those repairs done, in this case just the replacements done, get the car back out onto the apron. That's the way they did it. That was a whole new world. It's one of my favourite things about sports car racing, is is in a long race, seeing a car that's had a huge chunk come in and watching the army of people just descend on it. And then the fight back. It's fascinating to watch. For me, I mean, I love the underdog. Of course everybody loves an underdog. There is nothing I like more, nothing I like more in a sports car race than a fight back. Nothing at all. It is a wondrous thing to watch people. And in particular, when you get over to IMSA, where there's the opportunity with the way that they actually use cautions to get back into a race. Daytona is a classic example of it, where you can get those three, four, five laps back that might have been lost to adversity in the early part of the race. You know, it's a different sort of race. Is it better? Is it worse? It's different. It's You might just as well ask, you know, do you prefer... Le Mans or Formula 1 obviously I prefer Le Mans but in the case of 24 hour racing the difference between Le Mans and Daytona is utter it's absolutely utterly different in more or less every regard apart from the fact that you have a relative handful of cars that are eligible for both the way in which those races work the way in which the teams work the fact that you've got to push the car behind the wall rather than working on it you know, in a pit car everything is different and that's what for me, still the buzz about 24-hour racing in particular is there is time and there is space if you've done the job well to fight back. Mm. And who knows, we might just get that. If Toyota don't get a cleaner run... Well, it year, could be like Porsche, uh, Porsche two years ago, couldn't it? Absolutely. 
I have to fight back. Uh, Shea Adam has chimed in. So it's Adam Shea. Adam Shea. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Adam Shea. Um, on Twitter says, "What's one kind of racing you've never developed an affinity for?" Drifting. Drifting. Do you hate it? <laughs> it's it's kind of it's a bit like um, pulling teeth. No, no, I, I kind of get it, and it's kind of fun. Oh, that's quite spectacular! Wow, that wheel goes across a long way. But I just don't get it. It's a bit to me like um, it's a motorized thousand horsepower version of Strictly Come Dancing, and I don't get it. It's like dressage for cars. Dressage for, for cars. And there's that. I don't really get that. Uh, what else don't I get? Um, the it was on the telly at the weekend. Um, quite the cars are really, really quick. Sounds absolutely terrible. Formula One. Um, I, I gather it used to be really good. Now it's absolutely unspeakably awful. Oh, you're going to hate me for this. But I'm going to say drag racing. I really can't. You, but you, I've never Have seen it live. Now there you go. That's the difference. No, no, no. I've never seen it live. No. But I can't. Watching it on TV, no. I'm just like, I'll tell you, oh, man. Drag racing. You have got to be there. Okay. Forget everything you see on TV. Go to a top fuel drag race, and I guarantee you, Stephen Kilby. You will come bounding into the room to tell me all about it. it there is, it, I mean, I agree with you. Just watching a car launch and waiting to see whether or not it got point this or point that. Eh, go and see it. It's an event, and it's 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 controlled, barely controlled automotive violence. It's it's imagine this. The one twenty four hours ten years ago. The Audi comes in. Okay, it's a driver change. There's a clink at the back of the, the garage as they unchain the cage that keep little Alan McNishin. And then he gets in and it's uncontrolled violence for the next two hours. It's like that in like three seconds. <laughs> That's top fuel drag that racing. pretty good. It's Alan McNish in a box with someone waving a tonics tea cake at him through the small cage window. Next one is from Ryan Turpstrow and it's a question for me. So thank, thank you very much, it. Ryan. Yeah, yeah, it. you better ask it. No, no, I just want to do that. Okay, Ryan. Uh, thanks for filling in, Stephen, and thank you very much indeed, Stephen, for filling in. Is there a series you don't cover as a journalist that you regularly follow? Um, it's, it is an odd one, this question. I have had a think about it, and you'll sympathise with me with this, Graham, in the fact that we, we, watch, you don't see that. You, well, we, we watch so much racing for work that finding the time to watch a complete championship that we don't have to cover is really difficult. Because either, even if we you know, love it, we're away while they're on yep. and often working at exactly the same time these races are on. Um, and by the time you get home after doing a weekend of racing, the first thing I don't want to do is turn on and watch another race. But I do watch racing throughout the year that we don't cover. I don't watch full seasons of, of, of these, but I do watch a bit of IndyCar. I like yeah. the new shape of IndyCar a lot. I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a series that I dip in and out of, and yeah. I always have done. Um, I watch some WRC, because um, it's so different to what we do, and I like the yeah, fact that so it's... So, so say, I'm, I'm, <laughs> Stephen really likes Hyundai's. Really the likes The cars are cool. Come on, Graham. Hyundai's, Come on, Graham. But, but Stephen's favourite car used to be the Hyundai i20. I'll... Prefer, I'll, I'll favourite rally car of the current spec at the time but okay let's he's got the cap and everything <laughs> well you bought it for me <laughs> for Christmas <laughs> Santa um, 
So yeah, I watch a bit of World Rally. I think that's really cool at the moment. Who knows what it'll look like in a couple of years with the factories, but at the moment it's really cool. Um, I used to watch NASCAR a lot, but I just, you know, I kind of grew out of it a little bit. It's a very different type of racing, but... But no, I don't watch anything full-time over the course of the season because we just don't have the time. Do you, Graham? No. I mean, you know, what I generally tend to do, my, well, the way in which I catch up with motorsports um, is I'll often have something on the background if I'm in the office, if it's on playback. And if I, actually, when I'm packing for an away mission, um, which of course there's a lot of, um, and, you know, I'll usually pack in up in the house uh, rather than down here in the extensive uh, DSC headquarters, uh, complex now extends three um, three levels below ground into our uh, you know our evil lair where we keep uh, the DSC mobiles. But uh, if I'm packing, it's up in the house. And while I'm packing, on a Sunday, for instance, if Trudy's out and about with our little one, uh, I'll quite often have motorsport in the background. And you know, I've watched everything from the Toka package, which is beautifully covered here, by the way, um, on ITV. To frankly anything else that's around and, and it is on in the background, it's GT racing, you know, IMSA, etc. Uh, so I'll watch. Do I follow anything as religiously as I used to? You're absolutely right. The problem is that we're away for what 20 to 30 weekends a year clashes with literally everything. And you don't have a vested interest as a fan when you work in it this closely, do you? Really, in that sense, no, like, I, mean, I must watch this to find out who won. Yeah, as everybody, as, as everybody knows, I'm an enormous Kimi Raikkonen fan. Uh, I think he is the living messiah, and that uh, that his cheeky, chappy exterior uh, basically just covers up his innate genius. As a no, I don't. I just think he's bloody rude, to be honest with you. But no, the reality is, I try not to get hooked up in the personality aspects of it. Um, I try to dip in and have a reasonably good tag on. Most motorsport, there are some I struggle with Formula E, I'll be honest with you. You know, I've watched it mm, from time too. to time. I just don't think it makes a very engaging TV product. I think they try just a little bit too hard. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think there are others that do a brilliant job. Uh, it is still in our bailiwick, but I think the, if you're looking at a way in which you can cover um, motorsport that doesn't yet have a mass audience well... I think SRO do a fantastic job with their streaming products with what they do mm. worldwide. Uh, absolutely fantastic uh, way of actually covering that. And I think that deserves probably a bigger audience than it's currently getting. Uh, beyond that, of course, we're both involved with a number of series um, and we've got varying degrees of uh, opinion and confidence about whether or not that's being done as well as it possibly could be. Mm. Love what I do. Mm. And it does mean that sometimes when you get home, you really do want to switch off. Yeah, it, it is important for us though, and I think I've found the longer I've been doing this, more and more doing things like spectating trackside at races, you know, that we're at for 10, 20 minutes during a practice session, or just going and watching a form motorsport that I don't normally watch is good because it gives you a bit more of a window outside the bubble that you're in. And we do talk about the fact that we are in a sports car bubble here. And so when I sit down and watch something like MotoGP, I'm always reminded. Actually, this is really good. It's really entertaining. Oh, what's your pick? Well, I, oh, just don't, I just don't have time time or 150 quid to spend Look, on the streaming package. I, I've, I've never been a massive two-wheel sport fan. I would say, though, I think TV, with its restrictions, does a better job with two-wheel motorsport than it does with any four-wheel motorsport. So you can see them work, can't you? You can see them work. You can get close. You can get the cameras that are on board. It's a visceral thing. Then you get into things like the Northwest 200 and the TT, and it's just 
Madness. Just madness. Mm. Just madness. And yeah, it's it, that is as close to a gladiatorial um, sport in motorsport now that we've got anywhere in the world. Uh, and so, yes, if the MotoGP stuff is on, if TT is on, I will take time to go and watch that because it's altogether different gravy. <laughs> Jeff Easterling asks the next question on Twitter. He says, how much bearing does success or failure in Formula One have on manufacturers like Ferrari, McLaren, Red Bull on their choices to go and do something like Le Mans? I find myself rooting for them in F1 just in the hopes that they'll expand to do Le Mans. (laughs) Well, I mean, of course, Ferrari do um, in GT, but uh, Ferrari have been, it is fair to say, the most Machiavellian force in motorsport for as long as I can remember. Um, their current involvement could they come with something at the top end I think we've been through periods where they've been very close I think we've been through periods where that's fallen off a bit of a cliff Um, will they come honestly God knows it's a straight answer how much of that is the success of AF Corsa kind of doing it all for them no no I think AF Corsa to get that get that right I mean AF Corsa operate dozens of cars in dozens of championships and on track days one make you know, multi-class GT racing and now LMP racing as well, of course, across the world into the hundreds. That they, of course, do. But the only factory program they've got is they operate the Ferrari factory GT team um, in WC. That is the factory entry. Um, are they a factory team? No, they're not. Okay. And should they? Were we to go to a car car? program for Ferrari, would they be in charge of that? No, they wouldn't, is the straight answer. They might have an involvement but they would not be the team that ran that that project. Um, Do Ferrari kind of look at what they of course are doing GT Pro though and go, well we've got cars there that are capable and have won world championships against other big manufacturers do we need to spend any more money on the WC? Maybe, but equally well, there's other reasons why car car or something similar might be attractive. And Some of those are not the most obvious reasons. Sometimes it's as a technology demonstrator or development tool. Sometimes it's because they're looking to twist the arm, as they've done time immemorial, uh, the arm of Formula One in terms of the way they'd like regulations to go. Sometimes it's because things like cost capping come in and they simply don't want to release their skilled staff into the marketplace to be picked up by their main competitors. I think at the moment it's a combination of a number of those factors that have got them sitting somewhere close to the fence. Brian Dawkins is next up, who says on Twitter, was always impressed with the performance of the Zytec slash Gibson P2 car. Is Gibson still involved in chassis production at all? Are they interested in pursuing a P1 chassis or possibly an approved P2 constructor going forward? Uh, the answer, I think, is at the moment, no. Uh, there have been some sharp changes in what used to be Zytec and some parts of that organisation sold off by uh, Bill Gibson, uh, the founder. Uh, so not involved in chassis development or technology. They came close some years ago, you may recall, to P2. They made uh, they were, were going to make a bid for one of the P2 licences and decided not to do so eventually. Uh, opted instead uh, to pursue a potential P1 uh, customer engine program which eventually came to fruition um, after failing initially with what we've now got with the current P1 uh, program uh, they are very firmly involved in the engine side of things I don't see them coming back anytime soon in the chassis marketplace I think they are highly pleased with the way that the P2 uh, 
spec engine program has gone with the 4.2 litre GK428 and let's wait and see what happens with the 4.5 litre version that's currently in P1 Travasaurus again back WC Reddit and he's said what is your opinion on Amstar racing and how the AM affects the setup of a car if you take the up and coming version of a silver they should be able to handle a car set up closer to the knife edge of performance than a more conventional sorry a more conventional older gentleman driver whom it would be too risky margins are so tight in spec style racing such as LB2 could this be the way to go if you want to win a championship with more um, if you if you if if you want to win a championship, um, or is this skewed by the up and coming driver getting better as they develop their skills as a driver? I think that's the the problem with the way in which pro am uh, racing works is is the broad base. It's a very broad base of uh, backgrounds that the bronze and silver drivers are coming from. Everything from literally kind of mid teens carters coming into uh, sports car racing at the first level. Um, all the way up on that side of the fence, and there is a fence here as well, to guys that frankly have looked in and not gold yet. Um, on the other side, uh, people who've been plucked by their own enthusiasm or potentially by a driver coach or a team that have been involved with into moving from a track day to international motorsport through a couple of uh, interim positions, right up to the level of people like David Heimeyer Hansen. Uh, Simon Dolan back in just a couple of years ago, where they are not very they're exactly what you're just describing there. Um, they they are tenths off a, a professional driver, and sometimes even quicker than some of the professional drivers. The beauty of it is that you've got to run with the package that's dealt out to you, and in pro am racing, that package is defined by who's paying the bill, and that person ultimately will make the decision as to whether or not they're prepared to make that compromise in the car setup against their own individual comfort interests for the team's interests. And you'll see that too. So they're, they're the kind of questions it's kind of quite fun to just dip into. Not to expose the fact that someone may have had a little less confidence than somebody else, but that might be the reason. The, the point you make as well about the, the fact that those uh, those operating windows are tighter when you get to be more spec I think it's a really good point look for instance at the level of comfort that Francois Perodo has had this year in LMP2 I don't think he's enjoyed himself this year in LMP2 in the WEC as much as we've seen him enjoy uh, in previous seasons and you know absolutely expect him to be back in GTM in 2019-2020 uh, uh, I think that is a, a very well observed uh, point there that they are just edgier these are really very quick cars indeed and remember i mean we talked about the uh the speed of the lmp1 cars in relation to the previous factory iterations look at the lmp2s it's not that long ago that 330 was the red line at le mans these cars were doing 325 this is not the top class this is the secondary class in prototypes and for me you know i'm going to chuck into the mix here's something to think about um we go down the road of talking about if they do this with car car, then you have to to, to wind back the LMP2 cars substantially to keep them out of that mix. Why? Why do we have to do that? They should have an inbuilt disadvantage in that they are pro-am cars. That should mean that over uh, certainly over a 24-hour distance or a six-hour distance, they should be significantly slower 
over the full race distance than a P1 car. Um, I don't think you need to do as much as is at the moment being talked about. 7 to 10 seconds wind back, I think, is ludicrous for a, a P2 car. I think that's that's not respectful of the abilities of those teams whatsoever. And think of it this way. Start the Le Mans 24-hour race. Let's say you've managed to get three, four factory teams. That's eight cars at the front. Let's say we've still got three or four legacy P1 teams grandfathered back to that, let's say, 330-ish. And let's say we've then got P2 cars where you've, you've trimmed three or four seconds out of those as well. You could have 20 cars piling down the Monzan at a reasonably similar pace, albeit delivering that pace in a very different way uh, through the full lap. That could be something a bit special. Don't mess with the P2s. Before we get on to our final few questions in the fun section, I'm going to throw one more question at you, Graham, because I think it's a hot topic today. Hot topic? Hot topic. Hang on a minute. Hot, hot topic. topic. Um, the dust is currently settling on Ford's announcement, their official announcement they're ending the factory programme. Graham, looking back, I know we've still got a few more races left, we've got them on, we've got the rest of the IMSA season, but looking back on the Ford GT programme, what did you think of it? Car spectacular. Looks astonishing. Took design of GTE forward to a point where the other teams had to respond, the other factories had to respond. We wouldn't have the 911 RSR without the Ford GT. Um, the Aston Martin interim car looks spectacular, and now the current car is again a step forward. Um, did they rewrite the book to favour bringing in a big factory? I think inevitably they did. But you know what, boys and girls? That's just the real world. On the rest of it, they've not had the success that I think they felt they could have. Maybe they've got a point that's at times balance of performance has trodden on them pretty hard. But then again, I think they would look back privately and think, we did take the mickey a bit them on that first year. And they did. Um, solidly take the mickey at them on. They did what some of the guys behind that team have been very good at doing all along, which is read the rule book, look at what the rule book allows you to do, do that, execute the plan. It's not their job to go out there and basically offer up a disadvantage to themselves. It's their job to go and win races. That is what the factory um, expects. One other point to make about the, uh, the Ford effort is this, and it surrounds the driving squads. It has been a joy to see a number of those drivers given the opportunity at a point where some of them might not have, have got an opportunity and a point where others of them were careers were beginning to actually wind down a little um, or opportunities just faded away. It has been a joy to see some of those guys back with smiles on their faces and just showing just how quick they are. Look at you know, drivers like Richard Westbrook, Olivier Pla, Andy Prio in particular who has been a revelation to me in his time in the WEC. I hope we keep Andy, because, boy, he's quick. He's exactly what I want to see in a sports car racing programme, which is, you know, a massively skilled, world championship quality, aggressive, uh, but smart race driver. And if you would have put, three years ago, Harry Tinknell and Andy Prio in a room and thought, that right there is a potentially very potent uh, driver duo. You'd have been laughed out of it. You'd have been laughed out of it. But the, the introduction of tall bloke from the west of England, just plucked from the cockle trawlers, 
you know, and thrown headlong uh, into a championship career. And W.C. Santa, when he starts his beard, uh, the not well, absolutely highly vertically challenged Andy Prio, you know, a man who has children that are winning races, um, that and I mean races at a national level, an old old man indeed. Hope you're listening, Andy. Uh, old old man um, coming out and kicking ass. I think that is absolutely brilliant. And for that, Ford Motor Company, Multimatic, and Chip Ganassi Racing, thank you very much. Okay, here we go. So we're on to the fun part. Of the, I'll be uh, the judge of that, well, Stephen. Yeah, well, you know, don't judge me. Just the just the listen to questions. First up, we've got James Counter again on Facebook. He says, "What's the worst you've seen a driver look in team kit? What's the worst company clothing you've had to wear?" We've had some Lulus, haven't we? Um, the worst I've had to wear. Mm. Right, well, okay, let's start with the original Toyota team kit, which I am <laughs> fond of telling uh, Alistair Moffat looked like the 1973 Lithuanian basketball team. That didn't sell very much in terms of merchandise, I can tell you. It was designed by, I don't know what the bloke's name was, but his Labrador that uh, guided him around the paddock was a very nice dog. Um, they then had Pirelli used to have some hilarious ones, which basically made Ronald McDonald look understated. Uh, the yellow and red there was comical. Um, what about the the, the rebellion uh, mankinis? Oh, the, rebe- the rebellion mankinis were that was bad. That was very very bad. Um, uh, I actually, seem to remember going to the garage and looking at the drivers putting them on, going seriously. Yes, seriously, absolutely right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, you then get to um, what else? Uh, Olivia Pla in chrome green overalls was stone cold hilarious. Actually. It did look like a green match, uh, which was quite quite astonishing. Um, uh, and the other one that was a great effort, but just didn't pay off. Keating Motorsport, yeah, the tuxedo, the tuxedo, the tuxedo the uh, But yeah. th- th- there have been some some howlers, <laughs> and I think the problem is it is that thing when you add three Dness into it, something looked great on a designer's palette that perhaps looks a little less less good when you put it on real-life racing driver. And yes, we have seen some, some looks and drivers, and that look was, if you say one word, <laughs> I'm going to lose my shit. We've had, we've had drivers to, say but, that to us, haven't we? We have. But for, for me, as um, an overall uh, level, yes, we've had worse than this, but the fact that it was a full factory team for a full season, that, uh, that initial Toyota kit was, how can we put this, different. <laughs> Uh, Sheer Adam. Adam Sheer. I've told you before, it's Adam Sheer. She Adam? It's a bloke. Shadam. Shadam. Shadam! She says, sorry for the the recent lack of questions. Um, what is the one racetrack you'd be happy to go, to never go back to? Snetterton. <laughs> <laughs> You've only just come back from I this. Is it better I than Bathurst? I enjoyed it. I, <laughs> um, <laughs> ooh, tracks that we want to go back to. Sadly, I'm going to add Zuhai to that. Um, I quite yeah. enjoyed Zuhai back in the RMC days, but going back with the Asia Le Mans series, time has not been kind to that place. It was hit by a cyclone, and I'm not kidding, and it looks it. Uh, took the roof off the main stand. They've left it that way. Oh. I think the roof's probably still in the back somewhere. Uh, but uh, It's sad seeing circuits like that. It is sad seeing circuits like that. It's like and, Dubai in uh, some it, ways. It is, and, and uh, Zuhai... Don't particularly uh, want to go back. It's a shame because I quite like going to Zuhai. It's a fun place to go to. Um, 
Certainly, yeah. Uh, yeah. Places that you've just had a miserable time. And I've, there's been times when I've stood in the paddock at Stetterton and the wind and the rain sweeps across it. And you feel like you're out there in a North Sea trawler rather than actually covering British GT. Um, and there are times when you just stand looking up at the sky going, damn you, damn you, Jonathan Palmer, for buying this place. Uh, but um, not a fan of Snets. It's just a long way from everywhere. It's quite a long way from Snetterton, never mind anywhere else. But, you know, it's... Um, as far as the international tracks are concerned, I'm a very lucky boy. I've got to go to more or less all of the places I've loved, you know, watching from afar. There's one or two still on my bucket list. Hopefully one of those will come uh, this year. I'm hoping so. Just about to nail down the package for that, um, hopefully this week. Uh, but there's not very many that I would turn around and say to you that... I never want to go back there again. I could do without the trip to and from Spa, but I quite like it when I'm there. It's just, it's the world's dullest trip. <laughs> Can I say rather controversially, Silverstone, on the basis that that WC LMS doubleheader running it. between the two paddocks is thoroughly miserable? Yeah, but that's not the play. The thing is, here's the it's strange still, thing. But I, it's not a place that it's okay because it's Silverstone. Silverstone's, I mean, it's got, just Silverstone. Silverstone's yeah. got to be a better place to work in recent years. There was a time three, four years ago when it was just horrid. Um, you just didn't feel welcome. Here's the odd thing. Do I love Silverstone? No. Does it produce good racing? Hell yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Right. It really does. And that's the thing. I can forgive a track all sorts of ills just for the fact that it produces really, really good racing. I mean, you know, controversially... Wish Rockingham hadn't shut because actually oh, to Rockingham. watch a race at Rockingham it's used great. to be great fun. Really good. Uh, but there's not many tracks that you kind of look back and think, I don't ever, ever want to go there again. Here's the odd thing there are very, very few tracks I've been to just once. Very few. I could probably list them on the fingers of both hands. Um, and because of the nature of the way that you know my duties with Delhi Sports go down through the years and later with radio and with TV, um, there aren't. That, you know, that I, I've not been to as many uh, circuits as, as, as many of my colleagues have because I'm usually going back to the same circuits time and time again. So I don't collect circuits. Um, and famously, I've never been to a street race. Uh, that's something I, I feel I need to actually sort out sooner rather than later. But no, there are not many places that I'd rather, I would never go to again. What about Mexico? What did you think of that? Uh, it's it was a, a different experience. Oh, I'd happily go back to Mexico City. I tell again. you what, the first year I really wasn't sure about that. The second year I had a much better time. We've been twice. Yeah, we went twice, didn't we? Blimey, two years in a row. So the first one was the one with all the gun murders, and the second one was the one with the fatal road accidents. Yes, fine. Okay. That, yeah, and they weren't as bad as the gun murders, were they? The road accidents. But, I, I th- but th- we just I, had a better time because we knew what to expect. I think. I think it's just the fact that it was it wasn't quite as well organised for those of us working there as as maybe it should have been the first year. It, you take something if you're smart from from any experience, and uh, you know I'm f- absolutely aware that we are in a very privileged position, and that people listening to this and people that, that interact with us on social media will look at what you do and look at what I do and wonder why we're ever miserable. Um, and I just have we're to not say, miserable. It's just ironic. Yeah, yeah. I would just say this: um, I've got to work with him every day, and if that doesn't make you miserable, working with Stephen Kilby every day, I don't quite know what would. Mm. <laughs> I wouldn't question. want to work with him. <laughs> so we've got Stephen Gate. Is it Gate? Yes. Yeah. Stephen Gate on Twitter says, "Out of any 
period of Le Mans history that you weren't present at, which one would you want to be a spectator at and why? Um, you've got to go back to the Group C days. I, I came to it pretty late, came to it in the mid-90s. I'd love to have seen Group C in its pomp, without a shadow of a doubt. I'd love to actually go back and tick the box for 1996, which was, I went to 95, <clears throat> and for day job reasons, couldn't go the following year, but it had been every year since. But no, back in, I'd, I'd have loved to have seen Jaguar win. Uh, and I'd love to have seen for, uh, yeah, a Group C absolutely in its pomp, because whatever else you can say about sports car racing down through the years, those cars were beautiful. Beautiful cars. Amongst the most beautiful cars at any point in history. Uh, so yeah, you could go back and be all romantic about the kind of, you know, 917 GT40 eras. For me, Group C was it. Mm. I, I, would, I would say there's two for me, one of which is you're at 95, because I've always wanted to see what the McLaren F1 was like as a race car. Yeah, it wasn't genuinely. That. That won that year. Yeah, what yeah. did it? Yeah. Um, I just think it, it probably wasn't the best race. I'm not sure. I'd, oh, it was good. No, it was good. There was, there was, there was, there was intrigue, there was drama, there was yeah, all cool sorts cars. of things. Yeah, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the story. Next time I'm on a road trip, I'll, I'll bore yeah. myself you for three or four yeah. hours about that. And the other one, I... As much as I've seen Group C cars racing, actually quite a few times when we've been in historic, so I've kind of got my Group C fix of cars that I've seen. And I think maybe like the 50s or the 40s, because the world was such a different place. And but, it, that would be as much of an appeal as watching the actual race for me. It's just going around Le Mans and seeing the circuit back then would have been cool. That, you say that sitting there with your double-rested jacket with your drill beyond. Um, you know, it's, I, I, get, I get the point. It was an altogether different... There was era. no internet, Graham. Could you imagine it? Could you imagine it? No internet, no running back to the press room to put stuff up in five minutes. Gary Watkins had been there punching out his copy, though. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he, he was, what, about 55 back then, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, I would have <laughs> done the podcast. You'd have to be That's there with true. a wax cylinder. You know? uh, tin can on the street. <laughs> yeah, no, no, wax cylinder, or you know, grooving, you know, getting a kind of record groove to send out, you know, 78s of the March Operating Podcast here from Brooklyn's. That would, uh, could have been that. <laughs> but no, it's interesting. Other, other eras, but uh, I look back much further than the kind of late 60s and I don't feel the connection. That, that I don't have the connection to the cars, but just that time, that period of time. It's like when I went to the Goodwill Revival. It's, you felt it's, like it's the, the f- what the clothing everyone's wearing. It's the... It's just the way that racing was run back then. It just... It, that hasn't appealed to and me. That, yet, literally, you sit here in a Tottenham Hotspur... Um, Tracksuit, and you sit in a tracksuit featuring uh, an unsuccessful football team to this point, and come up with a question, uh, answer to a question from one of our listeners that talks about style. Careful, Graham, because we're going to start getting questions about what are you wearing, Graham. What am I wearing? From... Uh, you know what I'm wearing. Tell, tell the listeners what I'm wearing. It's very cool. It's a very vintage. BAM, is it BAM Motorsport or was it BAM Racing? It's BAM it's Motorsport. Just, just BAM Motorsport, 12 hours of Sebring t-shirt from 2004. It is. Yeah, it's got Peter Barron on the back, yep. it's Mike Rockefeller, yep. the S Network Porsche. That's, that's cool. That's, it's, it's Actually, do you know what? 2004. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Barron with a t-shirt cannon. <laughs> okay, Right Turn Lover says, by which sorting um, criterion should she add them? She Adam, she Adam, announced GTD qualifying drivers for Detroit. She's announced GTLM drivers, for example, by size. I think it's got to be by IQ, uh, and you can you know can go in, in ascending order of IQ. Well, just don't tell them what order. Yeah, just let them work it out. Yeah, absolutely, ascending or descending order <laughs> of IQ, um, because it would be good 
to hear Oliver Gavin and Richard Westbrook announced at either end of that scale. I'll let you decide which is which. Final question. Lance Snyder says on Twitter, if Bushu had a dog, would it be a Chihuahua? No. It would be, Stephen. A French bulldog. <laughs> Christoph Bushu with a dog. Um, it's a bewitching thought, isn't it? I sort of think he's more the kind of person that would have reptiles, but mm. maybe that's just me. That's enough for now. Um, thank you for sticking with us with the Weekend Sports Cars, uh, the Marshall Proof Podcast with me, Graham Goodwin, with him, Stephen Kilby. Um, and once again, all best wishes to our good buddy, uh, Marshall Pruitt and his good lady Chabral going through some tough times at the moment Marshall will be back with us on a week in sports cars I'm guessing the other side of Le Mans I'm hoping so uh, but for now with thanks to our backers from Cooper Tyres and from the Justice Brothers we're packing to go to the Le Mans 24 hours